I'm Alex Mosed, and welcome to Winner Take All, where we talk about the constant battle to fight back and win against big tech monopolies. New setup today on the show. Got a standing desk. We had to reorganize some things. I had to change some of the cameras. Good news and bad news is I actually need to keep my desk clean. Yeah, that's a big personal development because uh, now you can see it if I've got uh, my usual junk on here. So... First show with a clean desk. We'll see how long that lasts. Chaos in the markets. Everything's down. Uh, as we predicted, everything's been overinflated. Let's start with, out with a little fun clip to just kind of bring everyone up to speed on what's actually going on in the markets. Yeah, I mean, that's basically today's show, um, or at least a good chunk of it. Uh, you know, a, a hilarious first two people to, to go down in that clip, ARK Investors, uh, that's Kathy Wood's ETF, where she said she's going to like quintuple the thing after it lost 40%. And should, should we look at where ARK is right now? Down 18% in the past five days. Ouchie. A little bounce back, though. Uh, looks like it's coming for today. We'll see if it's actually sustained. Um, and uh, Netflix was the next one that went down. Oof, Netflix has been getting hit. We've talked a lot about Netflix on the show. We've been a huge skeptic of Netflix on the show for years. You know, Netflix continues its slide, losing subscribers. While Disney Plus is gaining 8 million new subscribers, Disney added 7.9 million new subscribers to Disney Plus, bringing it to about 87, a little more than 87 million people worldwide. It doesn't include, they've got this like special deal, I think in India, Disney Plus Hotstar, which has another 50 million people. And so that's, I, I think it's more, much more like heavily discounted uh, users. So it's 87 million more legitimate, strongly paying users. They gained seven more million subscribers, not in the past quarter, but over the past year, now over 44 million subscribers in North America. Then you throw in Hulu and ESPN Plus, and there are over 200 million. And, uh, right? I mean, meanwhile, Netflix loses 200,000 subscribers, loses net loss of subscribers. That can't happen if you are a platform monopoly can't happen. And we're going to talk about Twitter in a second here, which also has a subscriber and a user problem. 
But what you see are these false monopolies. Yeah, both Netflix and Twitter are false monopolies, both in the content world, kind of false idols. You know, you look at their stock, their stock six months ago in November was $650, Netflix, $650. It's now $175. We've been calling it for years. I wish I'd taken out some more longer term like puts on this thing, but uh, calling it for years, Netflix is not a platform. Uh, they are a linear business, really just a movie theater with a, with, which had a better digital mousetrap. And we said it was not sustainable, wasn't defensible um, for years, been proven correct big time on this one. And, um, and I think just a few months ago when we were talking about Netflix before their Q1 earnings, we were saying it's going to go down even more. People didn't believe us then, um, right? The bleeding, I said, the bleeding has not stopped for Netflix. Has the bleeding stopped now? Hmm. $77 billion market cap. Uh, they're projecting more subscriber loss. There's two gotchas on Netflix and why I think Netflix has more downward pressure on it than upward, which means I think it's going to continue to go down. Two gotchas on Netflix. One is they have not invested in business model innovation. These past number of years where they had such a big lead on the rest of the movie studios, right? What you have to understand with these movie studios is they make movies, but they're part of a broader system. You, you know, right? They are part of a broader conglomerate. They have these movie studios have multiple ways to monetize these media assets. Disney is, I mean, literally the perfect example. This is Walt Disney. Over uh, this is now 75 years ago, 1957. His drawing of their business model. And what do you recognize in this web? Hmm. Movies and content is actually just one part of the whole system, right? This is called business model innovation, right? They've got the content intertwined here at the center of it, creative talent of creative talent of studio theatrical films. Boom, right at the center of the web. And then they've got distribution and then they've got TV and publications and magazine. And then they've got, dis you know, the, the, the parks, merchandising and licensing, music, right? Comics, all these different things with content at the center. Where is Netflix's business model innovation web? And the answer is that they don't have one. They haven't been investing in business model innovation. And that really is to the detriment of their leadership. But Reed Hastings, right? Reed Hastings was at the helm of this thing for too long. Um, did he crash and burn the thing like, uh, like an Adam Newman? No. It wasn't as hot air as a WeWork. But there was a lot of hot air in this thing. And he shouldn't have been sitting too pretty. We've been talking about it for years, how they needed to advance their business model from a platform and actually become a platform business. How could they embrace user-generated content? I think that still is an area that they should look at moving into. But the point is you can't just do subscription streaming. So that's point number one. Your competitors have a diversified conglomerate-like business model, which means they can continue to sink money into digital subscription streaming products while they have multiple ways to monetize that. And you only have one way to monetize that. And that's why everyone's putting pressure on Netflix to do ads. But ads is not the solution. 
You need true business model innovation, and they have just not done it. And I think the guy he promoted, this guy, Ted, who is really a content guy, first and foremost, you know, is that the right person to really forge completely new business models? I don't know. Probably not. Okay, so that's point number one. Point number two is what you really need to look at for Netflix is not their uh, operating income or net income numbers. You can see here, Q1, it says 1.6 billion net income, operating income 1.97 billion. You're like, wow, look, Netflix is making billions of dollars. Not true. What you really need to look at is their free cash flow, which they don't have. Um, so they actually almost, they pretty much broke even in Q1 at $20 million. But you look at the prior quarters, operating income, $630 million, net change in cash, negative $1.5 billion. Oh, okay. The quarter before that, net change in cash, negative $250 million, operating income, $1.75 billion. The quarter before that, operating income, $1.85 billion, net change in cash, negative $600 million. Why do you need to look at really free cash flow for Netflix as opposed to income? It's actually, <laughs> it's funny, uh, lots of uh, WeWork parallels. You know, they've kind of like done their own version of community-adjusted EBITDA without calling it community-adjusted EBITDA. Netflix's version of operating income is basically a complete hedge on how they decide to depreciate their spending on content. They have some kind of cockamamie explanation. We covered it for the like years ago where their CFO at the time was saying, oh, well, you know, there's a matrix of how we determine should something be depreciated over three years, four years, or maybe five years. And well, you know, it kind of depends on what kind of content it is. And da, 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 da. basically, there is no strict rule for how they decide to depreciate content, which means it's a moving target, and they don't disclose how they codify their catalog. And so you honestly can't look at the number because they spend so much money on creating content. That's really the main lever to decide oh, well, did we make $1.85 billion in income this quarter? Or, you know, $600 million. What you really need to look at is, do they, can they spin off cash? And the answer is no, they cannot spin off cash. The only time they actually had positive free cash flow was literally during the height of COVID when they had to shut down all the production crews, right? Like you actually, you, you had shelter in place and you could not go and create a movie. And then, boom, they created a bunch of free cash, but they weren't creating new content. Kind of a problem for a digital content streaming company. So for those two reasons, the company is actually not profitable. I would argue they've got community-adjusted EBITDA uh, tendencies. And when you really look at free cash flow, which is my true measure for if they're profitable, they're not profitable, A, and B, they're being squeezed by competitors who are only gaining more and more ground, who can continue to justify huge investments in digital streaming because they actually have a diversified business model. Both of those things put together spells not a bright future for Netflix, even at a $77 billion uh, market cap, even at coming down a high of $690 just six months ago, stock price down to $175. I do, I do think there's more room to go. 
And and as they have said, they have more subscriber losses to go, right? So yeah, they're the leader. They're losing subs. The other better fortified, more sustainable business competitors are gaining subs. It's just not a good recipe uh, for Netflix investors. So I would steer clear of that. Markets freaking out, pre-trading. At one point, again, this is kind of while, while the markets are closed, you actually had, I think, Twitter stock go down to like $34 a share. Again, it was a blip. But why that happened? Because Elon put out a tweet, deal temporarily on hold pending details supporting calculation that spam slash fake accounts do indeed represent less than 5% of users. Then he follows up and says, still committed to acquisition. So what does this mean? We've talked about it on the show many times, how we just don't buy Twitter's subscriber numbers, right? Their monthly active user numbers. They're fudging the numbers. Not only looks like undercounting uh, spam bots and, and not actively representing how how large of uh, their subscriber base is just bots, but they're also using tactics to, you know, uh, send you send you a tweet, send you a push, send you a text, send you any kind of notification that kind of just forces you to open the app, right? And then you open the app and you log in, and now you count as a monthly active user, right? So they they will they will use a bunch of kind of superfluous activity so that they can check the box and say, hey, look, yeah, Alex opened the app once for one second this month. Oh, I guess he counts as a monthly active user, right? Uh, No, it was maybe like you just accidentally clicked on the thing or they're spamming you notifications or this or that or, or, um, you know, in order to get into some other apps, you need to log in through your Twitter account like that still exists in some cases. Right. So all these not legitimate means of actually saying, hey, are you actually a monthly active user? I guarantee you is also riddled in their numbers. That's not even what Elon's talking about. Right. He's just talking about the tip of the iceberg here, frankly, in my opinion, which is that they have uh underreported the number of bot accounts and fake accounts and spam accounts that contribute to their monthly active user numbers. So historically, Twitter has said they have basically in the low 30s of millions of U.S. monthly active users, which is really the the most highly coveted users, right? Because they have an advertising business model, which means those U.S. users are way more valuable than the tens of millions of users they have in Southeast Asia, or India, for example, you know, yes, Twitter overall has hundreds of millions of users, but which ones are actually very valuable to advertisers? Oh, the US ones. And so what you see is a lot of games and manufacturing of monthly active user reporting on a quarterly basis, not just by Twitter, by all the other uh, content, particularly the, the large content monopolies as well. You know, your Facebook and your Google provide probably even even less transparency due to their monopolistic size and scale and tactics than even a Twitter. Twitter not being a monopoly, wanting to be kind of in the monopoly club, but definitely not in the monopoly club as we've seen just these past few months. All kinds of things wrong with Twitter. Here's, the, I guess the real question is, did Twitter leadership exhibit gross negligence or fraud to its investors, right? That's really what this is getting at. If one of the key stats that you report on as a public company is clearly wrong, right? So monthly active users. How do I measure the growth of this company 
it's engagement, right? And then engagement ties to how many ads you can sell and then so on and so forth, right? So that monthly active user number is heavily tracked and heavily analyzed and they they harp on it in all their investor calls for that reason. As Elon digs into their closet and finds these different skeletons, right? I think that's really the question is, how, how far off were those numbers from reality? And then were these people either idiots and, and grossly incompetent, i.e. what you would call from a legal term, gross negligence, which means they should be fired from their job, or did they know and they were covering it up, right? They knew, eh, we really need this uh, MAU number to be like 33, 34 million. Otherwise, we're going to get hammered this quarter. Yeah, maybe we have 6% bots, but hey, bot cleansing team, let's go a little light on the, you know, killing off all these accounts this month or two. Otherwise, we're not going to, you know, we're not going to get anywhere near 33 or 34 million MAUs. We know that kind of stuff was happening for what I was initially talking about, right? Hey, marketing team, send out all these notifications. Be super annoying. We got to get Alex to accidentally click on our stupid little notification so he opens his app and counts as a monthly active user, right? Those kinds of things are absolutely going on. But to what degree did management take things to essentially... Uh, defraud their investors. That is essentially the question. If this never, if this number does come back at five percent or higher, comes back at five percent or higher, management's in deep water. It's a question of which one of those options is it: gross negligence or defrauding your public shareholders. It's it's either or. It's really nothing else. You're in really deep. Uh, you're in a really bad situation as management with a fiduciary duty to your public shareholders. You can't do these kind of shenanigans when you're a publicly traded company. And that's exactly what it is. It's shenanigans. And it's actually illegal. And so what is Elon getting at here? He's basically, he knows that. He probably already has an idea that this is probably at 5% or possibly greater if he's messaging about this. So what's he going to do with this? He's, he's, He's going he's gonna to go retrade on the agreement. Um, what does that mean? Retrade is usually a big no-no. You go into a deal. You say, hey, I'm going to buy your company $54.20 a share. Okay. Let's shake on it. We have a deal. Retrading is when you, when you then, before you close the deal, you say, you know, that $54.20, mm, yeah, feels a little hot. Um, yeah, we're going to need to go to like 48 that's called retrading. Big no-no, not supposed to do that. Very kind of just poor form. Unless in your diligence, you uncover what could be amountable to fraud, <laughs> um, which is essentially what this is if, this no if these numbers come back, right? Like the spam tactics, the coercive tactics to get Alex to accidentally open the app and count me as an active user. Poor form. Not illegal. The, yeah, we grossly underreported the amount of fake accounts in our monthly active user numbers. And there's a bunch of data showing, right, how you could easily have known that this was actually much higher than what you thought it was and, right, should have taken action, should have disclosed this, right? Because if they had disclosed this information to the public markets, 
prior to Elon's offer, the company would have been valued way less, right? What are these tech companies valued on? Growth. So if your monthly active user number actually isn't basically, Twitter's numbers are basically a flat plateau, but they weren't really going down. So, but if Twitter's numbers, if they had to, if they were at 6% fake users and it should have been four, right? Yeah, now those numbers tell a very different story, right? Now it's actually a Netflix story. Hey, we are losing monthly active users. Very different story. Go look at Netflix's share price, right? 690 to 175. If that was the case, what do you think Elon could have offered to buy Twitter? Certainly wouldn't have had to offer $54 a share. So Elon knows this. And the other thing is that Parag, as a fiduciary you know, as an officer of that company who has a fiduciary responsibility to his shareholders, knows that if this deal falls through, he'll probably get sued anyway, even if the deal does go through. But if the deal falls through and Twitter's share price is going to absolutely tank, like absolutely tank, it's down 10% just on this news today. If the deal falls through, this thing is going sub 30. This thing is going through the floor. He's going to have very real lawsuits, not just um, on against Twitter, the company, but him personally. You have personal liability as a director and officer of the company. And he absolutely should be held accountable because it's all on him. You're a very smart guy. You get paid millions and millions of dollars. Why? To make sure this kind of stuff doesn't happen. The guy's not an idiot. I can tell you right now, it's not gross negligence. He knew it's option number two. Um, if these numbers come back at 5% or higher, Elon has huge leverage. Elon should absolutely retrade. And Parag is going to have to agree to it. Otherwise, he knows that he's going to be up to his neck in lawsuits for the next 10 years of his life. And he's going to lose them. And he's probably going to be wiped out, which is how the system should work, frankly. Because this is pure BS game. It's not what's supposed to happen, right? at least report the truth. And even if you can't get to the exact number, you got to be within a reasonable variance of integrity and just responsibility. Unfortunately, I don't think, don't think Elon would be talking about this if he knew that they were sub 5%. I think what he's getting in there and seeing is, these guys are a bunch of shysters. And, um, They've ruined uh, what could have been a great company and what will eventually be a great company again under new ownership. Um, but $54 a share is too rich for a company that's committed fraud. Again, if we're at 5% or greater fake spam users. Let's go into the world of secondhand clothing. We've covered this on the show now for probably a year or so, maybe longer, frankly, basically saying that secondhand is a whole new industry. You have basically the new clothing industry, and then you have the secondhand industry. And you need to actually think about these not as secondhand kind of nestled underneath and bundled as a part of new. And you need to actually think about it as new and secondhand. Makes sense? Like two completely different segments of the textile and, and clothing industry. 
And why is that? Because when you peel back the curtain on what's going on in secondhand, there is actually so much happening that what you will see is there are many verticals and niches, multi, multi multi-billion dollar niches within the secondhand industry. You can't think of it as part and parcel to new. You need to think about it as a whole new category. And so at a high level, you've got um, lower end clothing, uh, secondhand clothing marketplaces like a thread up, like a Poshmark, like a Vinted uh, or a Depop, which Etsy just bought last year, right? So it's kind of a lower price point, retrading, huge sustainability points, by the way, right? So much waste from the textile industry every year, right? So for people that want to buy the new stuff, well, there's people that want to buy the, the, the thing that you wore a few times and it's not that damaged, but yeah, they could get it for like 10 bucks when you spent 40 bucks for it, right? That's a whole market. That's a big market. It's good for the environment. It's good for consumers that don't have as much disposable income. It's good for the people that do have more income that can buy it new. And then at the very least, they can get a little bit of money. Maybe they don't care about the money, but they can help the environment now, right? You don't need to go buy a new piece of clothing every time. Wonderful, right? It's like win, win, win. No loss here. So you got that part of the market. You got then the high-end part of the market where, um, again, there's used, um, there's your, your Farfetch, which is probably one of the big category leaders there. You got the Real Real, both public companies. Farfetch is doing like JVs with uh, Richemont, China, and a bunch of crazy stuff. Buying companies, uh, buying Off-White, the, the brand from very unfortunate passing from of Virgil, uh, that famous designer, former like Louis designer who, who passed away re- somewhat recently. Um, so Farfetch doing a lot of amazing things kind of at the high end. But the, again, there's there's now multiple players. There's multiple players just in, in different geographies and in different parts of kind of high end luxury. There's stuff more focused on like bags, like specific products. And then also things focused on sneakers. That's where we're going today. And I've just overgeneralized a bunch of stuff. But when you actually look at the whole spectrum of secondhand, I mean, there's so much going on there. And traditional incumbents from the uh, clothing retailers to the brands have been asleep at the wheel. Highest manufacturer I would give marks to would be Adidas. Adidas has really embraced this or Adidas. We've covered Adidas, Adidas. In the past, go check out some of those videos on what they've done in this space. And then for years, we've talked about what Foot Locker has done investing in GOAT many, many years ago, $100 million. Great investment. I told the CEO to go do it. Um, great decision by Foot Locker on, on the retail side to get into this game. But there's a bunch of people besides those two companies that have done nothing or have done very basically the very bare minimum. All these CEOs, by the way, that get up on on their platform and talk about the environment and sustainability and this, right? And then they have this massive opportunity staring them right in the face, actually not only staring them in the face, a competitive threat to their business. They don't do anything. And if they do something, it's, it's so lackluster, right? Multi-billion dollar company, bunch of resources, brand, all these things. What do they do? Meh. Nothing that exciting. Enter Nike. (laughs) Nike. 
the biggest apparel brand in the world. What are they doing with secondhand and sustainability and this and that? Nike has decided to sue StockX. (laughs) The guy who runs Nike, the CEO, is the former CEO of eBay. This is what they do. They sue StockX. This is the solution. Let's sue them. It's so ridiculous. Honestly, this is a win for StockX. They're really just drawing more attention to StockX. Oh, what is StockX? Nike is suing StockX. Oh, all these sneakerheads out there that love Nike that for some reason, maybe they haven't heard of StockX. Oh, well, Nike is suing StockX. Why didn't Nike sue GOAT? This makes StockX look great because Nike didn't decide to sue StockX and GOAT and um, uh, Stadium Goods that Farfetch bought. Farfetch bought Stadium Goods for $250 million. Nike didn't sue them. They just sued the biggest player. And so what does that do to the biggest player? Reaffirm their status as the biggest player. I mean, these guys, who are the, what's wrong with them? At the very least, you got to sue everyone. You gotta, if you're going to go to war, you got to go to war with the entire field. You can't just go to war with the biggest player. You're actually just going to make the biggest player even bigger. I didn't get an NBA. You don't need an NBA to figure this. This is not rocket science, guys. So this is what they decide to do. Do they decide to go do their own platform? No. Do they decide to try to launch their own NFT to create a proprietary mechanism for Nike's really high-end sneakers, which is what Nike's complaining about, right? Have a Nike uh, NFT that when you buy one of these super hard-to-get sneakers, which cost them $10 to make in a sweatshop in China, it comes with an NFT, so you can verify that it was actually made. So what is Nike doing in this space? They're doing this thing called Nike Refurbished, launched last year. They're piloting it in 15 stores. Yep, 15. Uh, consumers can buy refurbished Nike shoes at select stores, but there's no broad consumer kind of trade-in program. And if you want to just give Nike your shoes, they have this thing called Nike Grind which is a program to recycle materials to be reused by Nike and select partners. Consumers can donate shoes of any brand at Nike retail stores to be recycled into grind materials. So it's it's not a trade and it's just saying, hey, give us your old shoes and we will recycle them and take care of uh, their disposal in a responsible manner. Move to zero is probably the best thing that Nike is doing in the sustainability space. Uh, it's an initiative committed to powering Nike facilities with 100% renewable energy by 2025 and slashing its carbon emissions around the global value chain by 30% within the next decade. Okay, it's great. But what are you doing at scale? What are you doing from a digital standpoint? How are you embracing this new business model Rather than doing very linear things, which is this Nike refurbished and this Nike grind, right? Your CEO, he was the president of eBay Marketplace. And then he was appointed CEO of eBay. Bought StubHub, right? The guy understands how to do Marketplace M&A, but there's no action, right? You, you, I mean, it's a perfect example of large corporate talks about sustainability, does these programs, has the opportunity to really embrace this concept at scale and propel it, like what Adidas is doing. Go check out what Adidas is doing. But no, that's not what they're doing. 
and they have the leader who knows how to execute on it. But for some reason, they're not doing it. And, and frankly, they don't have to just do it in the sneaker space, right? This is Nike. They do a bunch of things called not sneakers. Secondhand, lower end clothing part of the chain. You can go into the secondhand kind of luxury clothing part, right? There's, there's so many areas in this secondhand marketplace world that Nike could decide to play, but it's not doing any of it. They're doing a pilot at 15 stores. And if you'd like to give them your old shoes, they will graciously take them and recycle them for you. It's a joke. 2022, right? Ex-CEO of eBay. Nothing. Let's just sue the biggest player because we say they've, we bought four shoes off the platform and uh, some of them were fake. It's just a cop-out. Okay, let's talk about China. A report here from our friends over at Marketplace Pulse. Chinese sellers overrun Walmart Marketplace. Hmm, what does that mean? We've been very bullish on Walmart marketplace, their growth, combating the big bad tech monopoly that is Amazon, right? So we've been very bullish on, on Walmart, um, their marketplace success. And, and yes, it has been an all-around success, right? You look at them spending $4 billion for Jet uh, in 2016. Everyone thought that was crazy. We did not. Been very bullish on Mark Laurie, who now recently departed. Jet.com, the, the marketplace expansion, Walmart's marketplace efforts in India with uh, some M&A over there, right? Like all these things, we've covered it intently, been bullish on it, been proven correct on it. This was probably one of two things that Walmart has done recently, which I haven't liked. Both have been related to China. This video, this photo right here was their pandering to the Chinese seller community and going over to China. This was in last summer. This was, uh, yeah, no, this was last spring, March of 2021. COVID's still a thing in March of 2021, right? So a year after COVID got going, the top exec from the U.S., right, this guy, Jeff Clements here, I've Talk to this guy, senior VP at Walmart. He leads all of the company's U.S. marketplace business. This guy went to China to announce, hey, we want a bunch of Chinese sellers to come join our, pl our platform and sell a bunch of counterfeit cheap crap. Wonderful, Jeff. Wow. <clears throat> this is really what you needed to do. This is, this is what you had to go and spend your time on to go and like, couldn't this instead have been a differentiator between Walmart marketplace and Amazon? Right? Couldn't you have said, you know what? Yeah. We're not cool with a bunch of Chinese sellers. We want to have a different kind of marketplace. We want to have a quality marketplace. And then really hit Amazon on their Chinese weakness. Right? Couldn't that have been a really interesting tact? You know, when Mark Laurie left Walmart, what he said is, if we're going to beat Amazon, we need to forge our own path. We can't just copy and emulate what Amazon's doing. We'll never beat Amazon if we just follow their script. We need to forge our own way, right? This looks like copying the Amazon script to me. Doesn't look like the Walmart. You know, this doesn't look to be any different than what we've seen on Amazon, where we've reported now for years on there being, it oscillates between like 40 and 50% of the top 10,000 sellers on Amazon in the US are Chinese sellers. 
Actually, you go globally, you look in Europe, it's actually over 50% in some markets. Yeah, I mean, you can directly tie counterfeit goods, um, you know, a lack of quality of goods to letting these Chinese sellers sell, basically just factories sell direct onto the platform, right? At least if they're going through, let's say, a U.S. third-party seller, there's an extra layer of verification, of validation, of accountability, right? So if that U.S. seller is selling blatantly counterfeit products or products that, you know, um, cause harm to people, right? Because they're not made of a good quality. We have this thing called laws in this country. Well, I mean, we kind of follow the laws. We don't really follow the laws as well as we did in the past. But yes, we technically still have this thing called laws in this country, and they're kind of still followed. Certainly, the laws here are much more strongly upheld than compared to China, where uh, what kind of negative recourse can Walmart truly inflict upon a third-party seller in China who just wants to bamboozle all these U.S. consumers? Eh, nothing. They kicked them off the platform. This is the chart, which is really unfortunate to see, right? So this is tracking new sellers, all sellers on Walmart Marketplace, and the percent of them based in China. In April, you had it at maybe 37%. So far in May, you've got it above 40%. The last thousand are over 50%. You can see here, I mean, this is that event that I was talking about, March of 2021, right? New sellers on Walmart Marketplace prior to that event taking place, it's basically nothing. I don't know, is that even, is that 0% or 1%? It's basically nothing. And then March of 2021, it looks like it's at like 4%. And then April of 2021, right, a month after that event, they hit 6% of, of, of new sellers on Walmart Marketplace. And it's just a shame. Um, it's the easy thing to do. Very often the easy thing to do is what? Oh yeah, the wrong thing to do. The harder thing to do is to say, hey, how can we take a, a pro-quality stance on our third-party sellers, right? Like, this is March of 2021. You literally are doing this thing in China at the height of all of these stories with Amazon Marketplace taking down counterfeit PPE listings, right? It's like at the height of that mania where no one could get PPE, Amazon Marketplace is being flooded with a bunch of counterfeit product to try and combat COVID. Where is it coming from? Oh, China. What does Walmart Marketplace decide to do? Oh, let's go get a bunch of Chinese sellers. Great idea, Jeff Clements. And then there's also this other story which we covered, which was, this is again going back to March of 2021. Walmart announces $350 billion commitment to U.S. manufacturing, supporting more than 750,000 American jobs, right? So all in the same month. None of this happens by accident, mind you. Oh, press release. $350 billion commitment to U.S. manufacturing. Oh, let's go do an event in China to go get a bunch of Chinese factories selling on our marketplace. Who do you think Walmart really cares about? This $350 billion commitment is the biggest fluff piece I've ever seen in a long time. This is a 10-year calculation, right? This is a uh, peanuts. They're saying, yeah, we're going to put $35 billion a year to buying. This is all the saying is we're going to buy 
$35 billion a year worth of stuff from U.S. manufacturers. Walmart, over $500 billion in revenue. Yeah, well, I mean, we'll, we'll buy at least $35 billion from U.S. manufacturers. Yeah, yeah. Like, are you kidding me? It's, it's honestly disrespectful. How dumb do they think everyone is? How paltry of a number is this for Walmart? And then they go do this event in China. So it's, it's really sickening. Just these CEOs talking out of, you know, one side of their mouth and then doing the exact opposite. You know, you really care about this country, which is where your company came from, uh, and uh, capitalism and democracy and this republic and the values of this country. Clearly what enabled a corporation of your size and breadth and dominance to come into fruition you say you care about U.S. manufacturing, but then you sign up to a peanut number. You inflate the number by taking a 10-year view of it. Ridiculous. The way inflation is going, $35 billion a year in 10 years is like $10 billion of purchasing value today. And then you go and just copy Amazon and go try and get a bunch of Chinese sellers. I mean, it's just sad. Just sad. Especially because strategically, this could have been a huge win for Walmart, right? Strategically, this is high to COVID. March 2021, they could have said, you know what? We're not going to China. Mm. We want U.S. sellers. We are going to put all these quality controls into place. We are going to allow you to see. We're going to put a bunch of tools into place on Walmart Marketplace to help you see where your products come from, who's selling them on the Marketplace, where, do, where is their business originated? Where, do these pro, where are these products manufactured, right? Amazon deliberately tries to obfuscate all of that information. They have the power to do it when they want to, but they don't want to make U.S. manufacturing, U.S. sellers a priority. Because that, what would that do? That would hurt this kind of everyday low prices mantra <clears throat> that would hurt their volumes. They want to just sell the stuff for as cheap as possible, irrespective of the collateral damage, you know, which has been Walmart's raison d'etre for decades. But that's why this would have been so powerful for, for Walmart to do an about face and be like, uh-uh. You know what? That is what we used to do in the 90s and the 80s. And, but you know what? Now it's different. Oh, man, that would have been so powerful from just a messaging standpoint, from a marketing standpoint, from, a, from I think, a, a rallying of third-party sellers to say, you know what? Walmart might not be able to give me the volumes that, that Amazon can give me, but I want to go help Walmart because I know they've got my best interest in mind, right? And, and, and by the way, look at the stats, right? Who still comprises the overall majority of sellers on Walmart Marketplace? It's not Chinese sellers, right? So just imagine being able to, like, there's no way Walmart Marketplace had, had tapped, had fully tapped out the U.S. seller community. How could you have emboldened that domestic seller community to say, you know, I'm spiritually, conceptually, mission-driven, I like Walmart more than I like Amazon. They had that opportunity and they squandered it. JP Morgan had to do an about face and edit some of their research reports where they had labeled stocks with a lot of Chinese exposure as uninvestable. They said, eh, it's actually an error. We didn't, 
actually mean to use the word uninvestable because they are investable, but just really bad uh, investment targets. They use the word to describe these Chinese internet stocks as uninvestable. And, then, and instead of using the word uninvestable, they either clipped it entirely or replaced it with this word called unattractive. Why would JP Morgan ever do such a thing? Oh, that's right. Because they're bought and paid for by the Chinese. That's the unfortunate state of today's kind of uh, global elite. These are our large U.S. companies have so much money from the Chinese and, and other kind of soft power, which we've talked about on the show. The reason they didn't use the word uninvestable, because it is the right word, if they truly had J.P. Morgan's customers' interests in mind, which are their, their investors, right? Their um, clients that, that are taking their advice on where to put their money. If they truly had their best interests in mind, they would have kept the word uninvestable in their reports. But they don't because they got a bunch of Chinese money sitting in their coffers. And you know, China got really pissed at them <clears throat> and is really pissed even now, right? So JP Morgan, like they, they, they still did what China told them to do, which was not use the word. But then it got, it's, they published it in error. So now they actually got both ends of the stick, right? Now they look like the true idiot. Just like JP Morgan saying that WeWork was worth $67 billion. Anyone watch We Crashed? I, I believe that was Jamie Dimon, right? Jamie Dimon leading the charge. WeWork, Adam, you are worth $67 billion. What is WeWork's valuation today? $4.8 billion. So I guess it begs the question, does JP Morgan really have its clients, its investors' best interests in mind? Doesn't seem like it, right? They wanted the fees from the WeWork deal. They also wanted to make sure Adam could pay back their personal line of credit, get a bunch of fees from taking these companies public, right? And, they're, and then they're selling it to their investors. Hey, yeah, you should invest in this company at $67 billion. By the way, go check out our video on WeWork. We were one of the first, within 24 hours, of that cockamamie I'm now going to compare it to Netflix. Community-adjusted EBITDA, sham of an S1. Here it was. WeWork is doing $1.7 billion in revenue, and they're spending like $1.5, $1.6 billion just on the leases. Anytime you hear anything kooky that is skewing EBITDA, run for the hills, baby. You know who else is skewing EBITDA? Netflix. Yep. Netflix, someone should launch <clears throat> an investigation into how they depreciate their content assets and liabilities. That's some community-adjusted operating income if I've ever seen it. Like an Adam Newman special over there. And now they're at it again. Oh, yeah, these Chinese stocks are just, they're not uninvestable, they're just unattractive. Tell me how you really feel, J.P. Morgan. Between the DDIPO where they said don't do it and then they did it anyway and then Jack Ma mouthing off and then, you know, he disappeared for like four to six weeks. He, they put him into re-education camp. Like richest guy in China. They put him into a camp. 100%. You don't just disappear. Richest guy in China. Boom. Gone. Where do you think he went? DDIPO, $15. Is now at a buck fifty. It has lost 90% of its value in less than a year, mind you. This was July 2nd, 2021, right? Right around July 4th weekend. Remember that? 
And then the Chinese government like banned their app from the app stores, um, launched all these investigations into them. It closed on its first day of trading at $67.8 billion, currently worth seven. But JP Morgan doesn't want to tell you these stocks are uninvestable. Just so sad. You just see the, you see the Chinese corruption defrauding of our investors. <clears throat> Not just individual consumers, but pension funds, right? Uh, pension funds, you know, people's 401ks, their retirement money are going into these ETFs, are going into these indices that include these Chinese stocks. Now, our research and investment bank and, and kind of asset managers are too scared to use the word uninvestable for a Chinese, you know, about Chinese tech stocks. Still, to this day, despite all of this treachery, despite all of this corruption, clearly coming out of China and this thing called communism, yet still we bend the knee. It's just unfathomable. Our citizenry is smarter than this. They understand what's going on. Our politicians, our elites are all co-opted and corrupted by the money and the soft power and, and probably, frankly, just straight up <clears throat> blackmail. Go watch the interview with General Spaulding. He'll tell you some stories. People are smart. They get it. And a lot of other people around the world, too, by the way, who understand how bad communism is, who understand how corrupt it is, how many people it's killed and poverty, it's how much poverty it's caused. So, I mean, that's to me what keeps me optimistic at the end of the day is just the American people. But yeah, our leadership, whether in these uh, big corporates, the government, whew, yeah, they are not the chosen ones. Uh, more action going after Zuck, former chief business officer of WhatsApp on Twitter, saying why he regrets negotiating the sale of WhatsApp to Facebook. And what did Facebook do where they basically went back on the terms of the deal? So he says, I helped negotiate the $22 billion sale to Facebook. Today, I regret it. Here's where things went wrong. WhatsApp was founded in 2009. This guy joined in 2011. In 2012 and 2013, Zuckerberg tried to buy WhatsApp and they declined. Then in 2014, Zuckerberg approached them again, second time, with an offer that made it look like a partnership rather than you know a controlling acquisition in the sense that he said, hey, we will have full support for end-to-end -end encryption. That has now gone away. No ads ever, ever. That has now also gone away. Uh, complete independence on product decisions. It's gone away. Board seat for Jan on Facebook's board. Our own office, right? They have their own offices in Silicon Valley and other deal points, right? And then he goes on to say, if you use WhatsApp in the early days, what made the app very special was international communication. Right? You can communicate with family and, and friends in multiple countries. WhatsApp was a way to stay connected without paying long distance SMS or calling fees. And he has a, a great little image here of one of the co-founders, Brian, their raison d'etre, no ads, no games, no gimmicks. And boy, uh, did that get torn up. All WhatsApp did in the original days to make money, and they actually made a lot of money. That was the crazy thing. WhatsApp was making a bunch of money. All they would do is charge you a dollar. They actually made a lot of money. Um, relatively for a kind of communication app back then. And Facebook said they supported our mission and vision. 
uh, right around no ads and end-to-end -end communication and all these kinds of things. As we began talking through the acquisition, it made our stance very clear. No mining of user data, no ads ever, no cross-platform tracking. Facebook and their management agreed, and we thought they believed in our vision. Of course, that's not what happened. In 2014, Facebook acquired WhatsApp for $22 billion. And then within three years, <coughs> things started to look very different. In 2018, and four years after, right as details of the Facebook Cambridge Analytica scandal came out, Brian, one of the co-founders, sent a tweet. He said, it is time, hashtag delete Facebook. This is the co-founder. Facebook paid $22 billion for his company. Bunch of that in stock, by the way, which worth even more money. Keep that in mind. $22 billion. Guys saying within four years of, of them buying his companies, you need to delete this thing. We got to get off Facebook, right? You think he might have known a thing or two? He might have been able to see a thing or two inside the belly of the beast about what was really going on and how much harm Facebook's algorithms were causing, right? Because because they are so focused on ads and invading your privacy and because the ads then proliferate fake news, incendiary content, right? Because the ads needed to maximize engagement. We've had um, actually Facebook's first director of monetization on the show. He did that documentary uh, on Netflix. Go check out our interview with him. So the ads just need to peddle <clears throat> as much engagement as possible. So the algorithms are geared to peddle to you the most triggering content, irrespective of if it's real or fake. The fake stuff is probably more triggering, more exacerbating, more incendiary. So that stuff gets pushed even more. Then they suck down all this information on what you're doing. They invade all your privacy. They sell that data off to make more money, right? And this guy, Brian, clearly saw what was going on and said, oh my God, this is, <laughs> this is not what we signed up for. And then saw <clears throat> the writing on the wall that they were going to bring all of this, basically this business model to WhatsApp and pollute and kind of uh, tarnish his baby, right? His company which he had sold. Today, WhatsApp is Facebook's second largest platform, even bigger than Instagram or Facebook Messenger. But it's a shadow of the product we poured our hearts into and wanted to build for the world. And I am not the only one who regrets that it became part of Facebook when it did. Tech companies need to admit when they have done wrong. Nobody knew in the beginning that Facebook would become a Frankenstein monster that devoured user data and spat out dirty money. We didn't either. In order for the tech ecosystem to evolve, we need to talk about how perverse business models cause, cause well-intentioned products, service, services, and ideas to go wrong. And where do we go from here? Powerful stuff. Uh, props to this guy, Neeraj Ajora. He's now obviously started a company, not obviously, he started a company to try and combat this called uh, Halo App. You can go check that out. But that was really interesting. Again, another insider. Another reaffirming point of, of, of uh, opinion and data points on all the things that are going wrong with big tech monopolies, especially these big tech content platform monopolies in particular. Latest development in Amazon blatantly defrauding the Indian government and just like literally, yeah, the Indian government passes a law and then Amazon's like, oh, we don't not only need to follow that, we need to basically put an entire system to obfuscate and subvert this law. Like, like mafia type of crime boss type of stuff, right? 
We covered that. There's a great Reuters investigation, investigatory kind of report that came out a few months ago. Go check out our video on that to really get all the backstory on what Amazon did in India. And it is so scary and damning. It's crazy. Goes right up to the C-suite at Amazon, like all the top brass knew about that. Not only knew about this, they put this whole thing into motion, right? Now, India is taking action. India seizes documents and data from Amazon and Flipkart sellers in raids. They are raiding these Amazon and Flipkart seller offices. Uh, just a few days ago, Indian investigators seized data and documents from top sellers on Amazon's and, and Flipkart marketplaces in a second day of raids on Friday over sus suspected competition law violations. The Competition Commission of India started early on Thursday raiding two top domestic sellers on Amazon's platform, as well as some sellers on Walmart's Flipkart. Great news. What these documents are going to show in spades is this. Documents are going to show that these third-party sellers were just agents of Amazon, right? That these third-party sellers were basically just 1P sellers for Amazon, but calling themselves third-party sellers. And that was the crux of this law that the Indian government passed, is that if you're a foreign-owned marketplace, you can only have third-party sellers in India, or you can do 1P. You can buy, take product on balance sheet, and then resell it. But you can't do both. That is a right reserved for domestic marketplaces, right? So what is India trying to do? Tech protectionism. Where did they learn tech protectionism from? China. Where has tech protectionism worked out really well besides China? Oh, that's right. In India, when they banned TikTok. That's it for us today on Winner Take All. Hope you enjoyed the show. I will talk to you soon.